But in most cases, for all of us, our partner is just making us crazy in the regular everyday ways. And in those regular everyday ways, all of these skills can make a huge, huge difference. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. One of the most frequent topics of conversation that comes up on this show is the subject of conversation. How do we communicate with each other and how do we do it in ways that actually bear fruit, that bridge gaps in understanding or resolve conflicts or actually help us grow closer and more intimate in our relationships. And we've had some perspectives from within the the love and relationship community. How do you communicate with your spouse better? That sort of thing. But I wanted to tackle the question from a completely, well, not completely, but a much different lens, which is the idea that in our lives, we are having these kinds of conversations, difficult conversations, potentially all the time with our partner, our lover, our coworker, our boss, our child. There's always an opportunity for us to bump up against someone who doesn't really agree with us. And um, so I'm speaking from experience here, so I'm hoping that you can relate. Um, so in order to take on this particular topic, how do you have a difficult conversation, especially one where you feel like you've maybe even had it a million times and it's just not going anywhere? How can you tackle that project of building understanding and creating agreement and collaboration in a completely new way. Well, to figure this out, I have with me on today's show our guest, Sheila Heen, who along with Doug Stone and Bruce Patton is one of the co-authors of the New York Times business bestseller, Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. It's, a, it's an amazing read, as are most of the books um, represented on, by the people that I talk to on this show. Um, and in particular for me, it was so eye-opening to see how subjects that I thought I had explored every which way actually had a, had a subtext, had an undercurrent that I hadn't even fully been aware of. And so what I love about this book and what we're going to cover in today's conversation is really how to get at what's really being talked about and, and how to bring that to the table in a way that builds understanding. And I'm going to let Sheila fill you in on that. Just to remind you, we're going to have a detailed show guide for today's episode. You can get that by going to neilsatin.com slash conversation and just downloading the show guide there, or you can text the word PASSION to the number 33444, follow the instructions, and that will send you a link to download this show guide as well as all the other show guides from this podcast. Um, 
that seems like all the important information you need to know. So let me just tell you a little about Sheila. She is the founder of Triad Consulting Group and a lecturer in law at Harvard Law School. And for the past 20 years or so, she has been involved with the Harvard Negotiation Project, which is on the cutting edge of developing the theory around how we negotiate and doing it better and better, particularly when the stakes are high. And, you know, we're talking about, we were, just before we started this interview, she and I were talking about work she was doing in Israel. So if she can, if, if what she's talking about is helpful in uh, a conflict like what's happening over in Israel and Palestine, then I'm pretty sure it's going to be helpful for you in your daily life with your partner, etc. So um, she has been on Oprah, Diane Rehm, uh, G. Gordon Liddy. These skills cover the gamut of politics, of usefulness, and now she is here today to talk with us. So thank you so much, Sheila Heen, for joining us today on Relationship Alive. I am delighted to be here. So let's jump right in. Um, your book is called Difficult Conversations, and the copy that I read is the 10th anniversary edition. So it's been out a while. It hasn't solved all our global problems yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's only because everyone is not reading it, of course. <laughs> That's right. So go out and buy the book. That's right. Everything will be fine. Right. Um, and and I like how in the book you actually um, clarify that that the concepts are cross-cultural, that that what underlies a difficult conversation is is more or less universal wherever you go. Um, so maybe we could start there by your giving an overview of what makes a, a difficult conversation so difficult in the first place. And let's see where that takes us. Well, you know, that's a great question because one of the struggles we had in working on this book was even defining what qualifies as a difficult conversation. And, you know, what we came down to was, look, if the conversation feels difficult to you, if you're anxious about even raising it, if you have raised it a million times and it always goes badly or it go, seems to go well, but then nothing really changes – if it's keeping you up at night, well, it qualifies. And there are, you know, a hundred reasons why that is true. Um, but mostly these are the conversations with the people in our lives who really matter to us and about things that really matter to us. Um, and there's often strong, maybe chronic disagreement. There's often strong emotion and history there. Um, so we were really trying to tackle those conversations um, where the stakes feel high and that they're often don't feel like there are solutions. And that comes up all the time in relationships where things are, are brushed under the rug or not talked about, or you have that, that one conflict where suddenly it feels like your entire relationship could be in jeopardy. And so you never go there again, but it never goes away. I mean, so many divorces are the result of the conflict that happened eight years ago that was never resolved today. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice observation. And uh, you guys have probably on, on other episodes talked a little bit about John Gottman's work studying marriage. 
yes, in fact, he was our very first episode and he's going to be on our show again uh, this fall. Ah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love him. I love his work. And um, I think it's these two bodies of work are very much linked. One of the things that I found interesting in his work um, was that it didn't necessarily matter whether you were having the arguments <laughs> or you were trying to sweep it under the rug and not have the arguments. Um, when he talks about sort of the ratio of positive interactions to negative interactions, mm-hmm. and he found that, you know, your optimal is something around, was it five to one? Right. I, I'm wondering yep, if I'm remembering correct. that correctly. Yep. Which leads you to ask, well, wouldn't it be better if it were 10 to 1 or 20 to 1, 20 positive interactions to one negative interaction? And he says, well, if that's the case, then um, you're not having some of the conversations you need to have. So it's just festering beneath the surface and eating away at the relationship. Um, And then, of course, if it's, you know, 3 to 1 or 2 to 1, there's just too much negativity and frustration in the relationship to to keep a foundation that feels secure. And so for me, it's not necessarily about whether you have the conversation or have the fight or don't have the fight, try to hold it in and ignore it. It's really about how you have that conversation. And there are ways to have that conversation that help build and strengthen the relationship, even as we're quite honest and transparent with each other about how much we disagree. Um, And there are ways to do it that actually damage the relationship. So in some ways, it's not just that we have difficult conversations in our relationships. For me, those conversations are the relationship. Mm, Yeah, because that's where you're getting at the meat of what really matters to you. What really matters to you, it's where we figure out whether we feel understood Um, or even if I leave saying you still don't get it, I, it matters to me that you're still trying to get it, Mm. that it's still, that you still care about getting it. Yeah. So what I'm hearing in what you just said a moment ago is that we have this potentially this perception that the difficult conversation is contributing to the negative end of the, of the ratio and, and what's actually possible if you, Uh, develop the skill of having these conversations in a different way, then Mm -hmm. the conversation, the difficult conversation can actually be part of the positive. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that's easy to overlook, but is crucial is that whether it's in our personal lives or our professional lives, anytime we are having a difficult conversation or we're disagreeing about something and trying to work it through, there are really two levels to the conversation. The, the top level of the conversation is about the substance of what we're disagreeing about. You know, where are we going to spend the holidays? Um, you know, can we afford to make this purchase? Should we take the risk? Is this the right strategy? But there's a second level beneath that, which is asking the question, how do I feel treated in this relationship? Are you taking me seriously? Does my opinion matter? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Do you understand why I'm so worried about this or so adamant about it? And that second level, whether or not we ever agree on the first level, that second level is the glue that actually holds the relationship together, whether it's a working relationship or a personal relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And sorry, my mind actually wandered a little bit because I was thinking about like basically the experience that I had while I was reading the book, which was 
all of the times that that uh, I I sort of missed the mark because I had ignored that second part of the conversation, and we've covered it from the angle of that there's always a subtext, particularly in in romantic relationships, of am I still safe? And um, and I I think that's probably true across the board and part of of what you're you're getting at of that like am I being heard am I being understood am I being valued those are all ways of creating safety um, so I'm really curious to hear from your perspective uh, what the cost is of of leaving it at level one leaving it at face value and not really addressing those other um those other qualities yeah that's such a um such an important question because i think in the moment it's really easy not to um not to realize there's a second level going on here for me these days the place that it becomes obvious is uh in parenting because it's so easy to get caught in the debate, you know, this is about whether you can go overnight to your friend's house. This is about what time you have to be home. This is about whether um, you're being straight with me about your homework. And if I get totally, I can get totally hooked into that argument, substantive argument, and sometimes it's only afterwards that I realize, actually, I'm not happy with the way I handled that. In other words, as I teach my kids how to treat other people and how to work things through when they disagree, am I actually treating them the way I want them to treat other people? It's easy to forget when I can get sort of blinders on that the substantive issue is the real issue, but it's not, it's never the real issue. Um, the substantive issue is going to be gone next week. The underlying issue is in our relationship forever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just as a teaser to you listening, we're going to talk very specifically about the, the subtext and about how to really get at the meat in a way that you probably haven't before. So, Mm. um, so stay tuned for that. (laughs) Um, and actually, well, actually, why don't we dive in? (laughs) Because now the more that I think about it. I, I wanted to create more tension, but the reality is I think some of these issues are going to come out as we walk through the three conversations. And and maybe we could start by um, the overall frame, which is um, taking a conflict and shifting it to a learning conversation. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important? Yeah. So I think it's really easy to get hooked into, um, thinking, you know, this is about winning the argument or this is about getting them to admit that if, if it's not that I'm totally right, I at least am saying some things that are partly right or, or important. And it's really shifting the purpose of the conversation from delivering my message and making sure they got it to having more of a learning conversation where not only am I sharing my point of view, but I'm also part of my purpose in the conversation is learning, learning their point of view and learning specifically why we see this so differently, why we have different predictions about what's going to happen or how important this is or um, whether this is worth it. If that's my purpose in the conversation, it's going to be a very different conversation 
versus if my purpose is, you know, getting my way or making sure that they see why I'm right. Mm. Now, one of the things that we've been alluding to, but but should maybe talk about more directly, um, is this role of the internal voice. Great. So as we looked at different kinds of difficult conversations, I, I should say that way back in the early 90s when we were working on this project, the the working title of the book started out as the 10... The 10 things, uh, shoot, what was the working title? The 10 things, uh, that are hard to say or something like that and, or hard to talk about because we figured, well, there are probably eight or 10 or 12 different types of conversations. You know, there are conversations with your boss and there are conversations with a peer and there's giving feedback downward and there's talking to your spouse and talking to your teenager. And we just, we'll just have a chapter about each of those. Mm Mm-hmm. But what we quickly found is that we were totally off base there because at some point it didn't really matter who you were talking to or what you were talking about. The same kinds of things, the same patterns turn up in every difficult conversation. In other words, if you look below the surface of what people are saying to each other and you look at what they're thinking and feeling and are maybe not always saying to each other, if you look at people's internal voice, And our internal voice is that voice in our head that does sort of running commentary about everything in our lives. Um, There are very predictable patterns about what people are preoccupied with in the midst of one of these conversations. And the good news is that if you uh, if you understand that underlying structure that exists under every difficult conversation, then you can both negotiate with yourself Um, to understand sort of distortions in your own thinking and get them corrected. And you can predict what other people are going to be preoccupied with. And you can actually have a much more meaningful conversation. Mm. And that's where the three conversations framework that you mentioned a moment ago comes from, which is that our internal voices are really preoccupied with three buckets of things um, that are going on uh, beneath the surface, sometimes on the surface, but certainly in people's internal voices in terms of what's not being said during the conversation. Uh, before we jump to the those three conversations, I'm curious, how do you help someone who is really fixated on like, but I just need them to change or I just I just need that like that the the level one preoccupation where it's just like this is so important to me and and why don't they get it and um and it's like that that mental chatter is getting in the way of them taking the deeper dive which actually will help them in terms of the mental chatter but i could hear my audience and this is partly because i thought this too saying like okay this sounds great but you know i want something to change i don't want to just understand them like, so right, right. how's that going to help anything? Right. I know. I know. So there's this, there's this funny paradox at the heart of this, um, which is what I really want is for you to be different because if you were different, we wouldn't have this problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, as a result of being so focused on getting you to think X or do Y instead, um, I'm actually behaving in a way that makes it more likely that you're going to dig in your heels and we're going to be in a standoff. If instead I face up to something that is really dismaying, um, which is that 
I actually don't have any control over whether you change your mind or change your behavior or change in any way whatsoever, other than perhaps your marital status. I do have some control over that because <laughs> <laughs> I can decide that you will no longer be married to me at right, least. Right, right. Um, or be the, dating the, me. That creates an illusion of separation that if you have kids together, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, it's not really nice true. Point. Yeah, that's a nice point. Well, so there's this funny way in which sometimes what actually helps is the thing that we're most fighting against, which is to simply face up to the fact that, you know what, I don't have any control over them. I don't have any way to get them to do or be the way I want them to be. And it, it, in the first moment, that's incredibly frustrating and depressing. And for me, in the next moment, it's suddenly very liberating because it lifts the weight off my shoulders that if I could just figure out, you know, the trick, the magic words, I could change them. That's a lot of responsibility in the relationship. Mm. And so if I can't, if I give that up, the idea that I could control them, then actually the only person I can control is me. So now my job is how do I want to be in this relationship and what might help here? And for me, it's, it's really liberating. And it actually then leads me, if I shift my purposes a little bit, to just try, it seems crazy that they don't want to change or that they see things this way. So if I can change my purpose to just understanding what's getting in the way, what's so hard about it, why do we see this so differently or why do we, why do they behave this way? It actually leads me to conduct the conversation in a way that is more likely to help. It will maximize the chances that you'll make some progress without providing any guarantees because unfortunately or unfortunately, there are no guarantees in life. Yeah, that's so sad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I'm curious for someone who who feels like I've had this conversation a million times, or I should just throw in the towel and forget about it, or I should just take this person to court and let the court let the judge decide. What what would you offer someone who's in that space? Um. You could be right. I mean, that's the um, bottom line, which is that there, you can have the conversations as well, and notice I, that was a plural, conversations as well as you can. And because you can't control what they do, sometimes you then have to make some tough decisions if this isn't working. Mm. I, the mistake I think that we make is that we jump to that as the solution way too fast. Yeah. We jump there way too fast and we imagine that, well, if I just take them to court, then everything will be solved, <laughs> which as an attorney myself, um, taking someone to court, that process is even more painful than anybody anticipates, I think, and expensive. Um, and it escalates the conflict even further. So things get a whole lot worse before they may or may not get better. Um, and even if you get a judgment in your favor, it may or may not hold. Um, and so I think we have this fantasy that there's some other magical way to handle it. And even, you know, ending the relationship, as you mentioned, doesn't necessarily end the relationship. Although sometimes it does. So I, I actually 
think boundaries are an incredibly important thing. And the first half of the Difficult Conversations book is actually about the underlying structure that we're talking a little bit about and we'll get into further. The second half of the book um, starts with the question, should I have this conversation at all? What's my purpose here? If I don't, if I decide not to have it, how do I let it go? Because um, letting it fester isn't necessarily a good thing. Like I still need to figure out how to handle my feelings and views in myself, even if I decide I'm not going to, it's not worth talking to them about it. Um, if I do decide to have it, then how do I begin? Um, and then how do I get things back on track when they don't stick to my script? Cause they did not read this book and they're being their usual difficult selves. So, um, I worry sometimes that people see this as a magic bullet or a panacea. And I actually think it's an incredibly powerful tool that can really change things in a relationship. And there are limits to that. Right. So, Mm. um, the other person still has the freedom to continue to reject your efforts to be constructive. And for me, sometimes it's an identity issue. Like how do I want to be in this conflict with this person? Um, how will I feel good about myself and how I handled it afterwards, regardless of what they choose to do? Yeah. Yeah. And that I think for me and hopefully for you listening comes down to really trying. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I can't tell you how many clients have this story that, well, I've tried everything, you know, I've, I've tried a million times. Right. But we, we tend to try what we know. And so if you're getting the same results, it's probably because you're doing it the same way or, or, or just coming at it from the surface as opposed to the subtext. Um, and I can't tell you, you know, for me also, so many so many times where yeah i can't get this other person to change and i don't even get it like i don't get where they're coming from so like how how could we possibly arrive at a collaborative solution if right, i'm not they're, really they're crazy they're irrational like they're yeah totally yeah, right <laughs> you're just exasperated with them right because if they were sane they would see this exactly the way i do right <laughs> Oh, totally, obviously, because we are right. <laughs> right. And I yeah. and so maybe that's a good I mean you talk about this in the book, this idea that for the most part, you know, barring true insanity and even for people who are truly insane, their world makes sense to them. Most people are operating from a frame where everything they're doing makes total sense. Yes, it does. And it it ignores lots of things about the world, so it's a partial view. And I mean partial, both in the sense of incomplete and, you know, their view makes sense. And by the way, our own views make sense. Um, looking at these pieces of the puzzle and that we might ignore other pieces consciously or unconsciously. I also mean partial in terms of sort of self-serving or self-insulating. Like the story we tell tends to be sympathetic to us and the story they tell tends to be sympathetic to them. And so the, there are those distortions sort of built in along the way. So when, let's talk about the three levels of conversation, awesome. um, just so that we're uh, sort of giving some shape to the some of the vocabulary that we're using. Let's so do what, it. We, what we found is that if you look at people's internal voices in the midst of these conflicts, um, we're preoccupied with three core things. Um, the first is what we call the "what happened" conversation, um, or the "quote unquote" facts. 
So I have a story about what has happened between us, what is happening now as you're being ridiculous and difficult in this conversation, um, and what should happen going forward. So that's the first, and that has some sub-pieces we'll talk about in a second. That's sort of the most obvious piece, but below that, there's a second, which is what we call the feelings conversation. Um, what do I do with these strong feelings that I have? Are they legitimate? Um, what are they? They're the energy that's driving the conversation. I'm so exasperated or I'm so at my wit's end or I'm so sad that it's come to this. Um, and by the way, the other person is having their whole basket of um, feelings as well, which is driving how we're reacting to each other and how things are escalating or devolving. Um, and then below that, at sort of the deepest level, is what we call the identity conversation, which is really asking, so what does this whole situation say about me? Am I a bad person or a good person? Am I a good parent? Am I a good spouse? Um, am I competent? Am I loved? Those are sort of the deepest questions. And if a conversation feels difficult, even when it's totally trivial, and you're like, what? why is this giving me such trouble? And for instance, if you have trouble saying no to people when they ask you, hey, could you help me out, et cetera, often that's rooted in identity conversation. The story you tell about who you are is like, I'm a very loyal friend. I'm a team player. I would never abandon someone in need. Well, that means if anyone asks you for help, saying no isn't just saying the words no. It's um, doing something that feels in conflict with who you are, who you want to be. One of the questions we sometimes ask is, you know, if you're in the movie theater, I don't know how many people go to movie theaters anymore, but let's imagine you're in a movie theater and the people in front of you are talking or they're on their phones or something disruptive. Do you say something? And in a room full of people, you'll get, you know, every answer under the sun. No, never. Yes, always. And everything in between. And if you ask why whatever choice you make, why do you make that choice? People have a story about sort of who they are and why they act that way or what it would risk if they did speak up. You know, I don't want to be annoying or I don't want to be a troublemaker. Or I don't want to be one of those people who's literally uptight. Um, so identity is really driving a lot of our, who we're trying to be in the midst of these conversations. Mm. Yeah. And that's it. That's it. Those are the three <laughs> levels. See, it's Done. so easy. <laughs> Should we circle back to the what happened conversation? Yeah, great. Um, so what's interesting, if you look at the story that we're each telling about what happened, um, is that there are three key parts to that story. Um, one is I'm preoccupied with what I'm right about. You know, I'm right that you're being unreasonable. I'm right that you got this from your mother. I'm right that it's just a better solution for us to spend the holidays in this way. I'm right that we can't afford it. Um, so that's a big piece of my, um, certainty in the midst of these conversations, it can feel really scary. And so we're going to cling to the things we feel we're pretty sure that we're right about. Mm -hmm. The trick, by the way, is that they are also preoccupied with what they're right about. So they may be thinking, you know, I know it's a lot of money, but it'll work out in the end. This is important enough for us to, you know, stretch to make it happen. What's true is despite the fact that it'll be a hassle, we haven't seen my family in a really long time. What's true, what's right is that I, this is really important to me and you're not paying attention. And what's interesting is if you line up what each person feels pretty sure they're right about, 
the most common pattern is that there isn't necessarily a conflict. Mm. What's true is we can't afford it. And what's also true is that at, in the end, it probably will be all right. And it, you know, from this person's point of view, it would be worth it. So we're just talking past each other because we're focused on different parts of the conversation. The second part of the story that we're holding about what's happening has to do with blame. Whose fault is it that we're having this problem? Who's the one who's being difficult? Who's the one who screwed up, which is why we're left with this mess mm-hmm. um, that has to be solved? And then the third piece um, has to do with intentions, like what's motivating them to be so difficult or so adamant or so argumentative or so unreasonable. So we have attributions about people's motivations, intentions, and then often character. Um, you know, you're just not reliable. You just don't care about this. You, you know, you're being lazy. That's, that's what explains how you're behaving or, or what you're saying. Um, and so those three things together, what I'm right about, whose fault this is. And by the way, sometimes we're pointing at ourselves. Like I, this is my fault. I totally screwed this up. I'm a terrible person, et cetera. This intersects with identity as well. Um, that's not necessarily an easier place to be, to have the conversation, but blame is a big element of our internal voices, wherever that finger is pointed, or this is your parents' fault. It could be somebody not in the room. Um, and why is, why are the people involved acting this way are the three key pieces of the story we're each telling about what's going on. Now, getting at the, um, intentions and attribution piece That was one thing you wrote about that was really interesting to me, which is our tendency to think the worst of other people and to think the best of ourselves. (laughs) Of course we do, because we know that we're just trying to do our best. Right. And we're right. (laughs) Of course we are. Of course we are. You know, when I forget to stop, you know, for the groceries, it's because I'm totally overstressed and I have too much on my mind. When you forget to stop for the groceries, it's because, you know, you're totally irresponsible and unreliable. So we interpret our own behavior sort of in the best light in most cases, and we interpret other people's behavior based on the impact on us. If I'm frustrated or if you embarrassed me at the dinner table, you know, with guests, it's because you meant to. So if it has a bad impact, I assume you meant to have that impact or at the very best, you didn't really mean to, but you're, you don't care enough not to upset me. You know, this drives me crazy. Um, and so that the, the solution to that is often just to pull apart intentions and impact that well-intentioned people are people who just aren't paying any attention at all. They don't have any particular intention toward us. They're just coping and reacting in their lives, have negative impacts on each other all the time. So in talking about it, the fastest way to make someone defensive and to escalate a fight, here's a little tip if you want to have a fight with someone, um, accuse them of having bad intentions. You know, you knew that this would be upsetting to me. You did this on purpose. Right. You're just trying to make my life difficult. You're just trying to make my life difficult as per usual. Um, <laughs> right. Even better. You're always trying to make my life you difficult. Are always, you always insist on making my life difficult. You enjoy it. Um, <laughs> so people are going to defend their intentions. And, and to, look, we don't know what their intentions are. Their intentions actually are invisible to us. What's visible to us are their actions. 
So if you want to have a more productive conversation, simply stick to, look, here's the impact it had on me. Here's what you did. I don't know whether you intended it or not. I don't know if you were even aware that you were having that impact. They can't argue necessarily with the impact on you. They can argue with whether you're right about their bad intentions, which is, of course, triggering the whole identity thing. Like, I'm not a bad person. You know, you don't you don't get me. They're right. So are you so are you suggesting that you would not even talk about like you wouldn't say something like, um, you know, you didn't show up when we said we were we had agreed that we were going to have dinner. You didn't show up. um, And you know, so the impact is, well, that I felt really hurt and lonely and abandoned. And I got really angry. Um, and I have a story that you're just trying to make my life difficult. Like, would you even bring in that bad intention with the hope that they're going to somehow invalidate it or make you feel better about it? Or like, how, how do you resolve that that dilemma of of you know, I just feel like they're out to get me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are, by the way. Um, so I I would do almost exactly what you just said, except leaving the intention as more of an open question and a joint problem. So in other words, you were late again. You know, I'm frustrated. You know, I've been sitting here for... 45 minutes. There are lots of things I could have been doing with that. I rushed out leaving things undone so that you wouldn't have to wait. And, you know, I don't know what's going on for you in your head. I don't know whether it just doesn't matter to you or whatever, but the way it's working now isn't really working for me. So I'm curious what's going on for you and why you're late again. Um, and I'm wondering what we should do about it because at the moment, should I just plan that it's going to be an hour later than you say, or will that mean you're 45 minutes later after that? Um, because this, this is just a joint problem. It's not working the way it's working now. And we have to figure out together what to do about it. Now, I'm glad that you brought that up because one thing that people tend to do is jump to we got to do something about this and they they focus on the problem solving and that is also missing the meat like might perpetuate a difficult conversation right yeah it can because you have to understand what the problem is before you even know how to solve it yeah so we skip the understanding part and we impose our own solution from inside our own story which we just don't have enough information about their story to even know whether that will work Right, right. So, um, so let's get back to the three conversations, and um, I'd love to flesh them out a little bit more. But before we jump to the feeling conversation, um, I was struck by the distinction between blame and contribution, and and how do you how are they different, and why is contribution important? Like, why wouldn't you want to just steer away from that altogether? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be great if we could just ignore blame altogether. And um, lots of lots of self-help and advice and, and business gurus also just say, you know, don't blame people. It has lots of negative effects on the relationship. It doesn't solve anything. 
It makes people risk averse. It chills innovation, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is true. The problem is that human beings are hardwired. That when something goes wrong, we want to know why. We want to know who screwed up. I'm frustrated. We need a target for the frustration. And if we can't talk about why we have this problem, how did we get here, then we actually can't figure out how to avoid it in the future. We can't learn anything. So the the shift is just acknowledging, look, blame is going to turn up in our internal voices no matter what. The key is shifting from blame to what we call joint contribution, which blame looks back and assumes like somebody screwed up. Um, there's, it's somebody's fault. And looking forward, the reason we're having this conversation is to figure out who should be punished. Punishment is sometimes formal, right? You're going to be your child visitation. Your visitation is cut back as per our agreement or whatever. More often in relationships, it's informal. It's who's in the doghouse, who has to apologize, um, you know, who has to make up for this, who has to take time to fix it. Contribution actually asks different questions. Looking backward, it assumes look, everybody involved probably contributed in some way to where we're at today. Even if my contribution was at this stage of our relationship, I should know that you're going to be late. <laughs> Why do I keep turning up on time? <laughs> Knowing that the chances are you're probably going to be there 45 minutes late. So it's a funny thing, which is I'm not doing anything wrong. It's not, I'm not doing anything unreasonable. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Um, but continuing to expect something different from you when there's very little evidence that that is likely is actually perpetuating. It's a small contribution to perpetuating this dynamic. And contribution, by the way, isn't necessarily 50-50. It could be 90-10. But if our purpose looking forward isn't isn't to punish, but it's instead to try to figure out how to fix the problem, then understanding what each of us is doing or failing to do that is getting us here over and over again actually tells me what I could change and see if I can get a different result. So maybe, by the way, my father was, was and continues to be late for everything. <laughs> he comes by it honestly. His parents were 30 minutes late to my parents' wedding, I'm told. <laughs> so my mother, you know, they had this argument umpteen times um, throughout their 52-year marriage now. Um, but she also could see that, okay, so at this stage of the relationship, this isn't changing, at least not much. So rather than making dinner when he says he's going to be home, um, maybe I just assume it's going to be an hour later. And so that's partly what she did. She just always added an hour to whenever he said he was going to be home or would turn up somewhere. Or she would say, I'll drive separately because I'm not going to wait for you. Um, And it, it didn't meet her ideal situation, but it actually greatly reduced the frustration in the relationship because she could see, you know, I have some control over what I choose to do given the differences between us. Right. She had abandoned her victim frame, basically. She had abandoned her victim frame. She had abandoned the fantasy that she could change him too much at this stage of the game. And then, you know, if he did come home on time and dinner wasn't ready, she would say, like, it'll be ready when it's ready. It'll be good for you to wait for me for a change. (laughs) (laughs) 
which was her very empathetic response. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so, uh, but she also was like, great. I'm so happy you're here. You know, you can help. You can, we'll do something together. So it wasn't a punishment intended as a punishment. Um, cause she did want to sort of reward the fact that he was paying attention sometimes. Um, but yeah, the question of how, what are we each contributing to this is an important one because relationships get into pretty set patterns really quickly. Um, you know, in my marriage, I've been married 22 years, I guess. Um, you know, one of the patterns is that I sort of take care of all of the administrative details. I book the plane flights, I figure out the rental car, I, you know, make sure the kids get to the dentist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is not un- an unusual split in responsibilities. And sometimes I feel frustrated by that. Like, why do I have to do all of this? But partly it's the fact that he knows I'll take care of it. That means he doesn't have to worry about it. So by continuing to do it, I'm, you know, he's, I'm telling him implicitly or explicitly at the end of the day, even if I asked you to take care of this, I will double check. And if it's not taken care of, I'll take care of it. It means he feels less responsibility. So changing that has meant me actually letting go of some things and saying, look, this is in your wheelhouse. I'm not going to take care of it. So, you know, they need physicals before sports, high school sports start. They're going to be upset with you if it's not taken care of. But right. Like so that's an example. So you've got to take care of it. So that's an example of seeing how um, just making yourself responsible and or avoiding having that conversation is a way of contributing to the problem when you're when you might be hoping that your husband's going to voluntarily step forward and start doing some logistical stuff, which right. would, would never happen. Which would never happen. And sometimes he'll do it and then I'll tell him he did it wrong. which is not encouraging him to do it. Like I need to, if I'm going to have him actually take care of things on that particular front, he takes care of other things. I need to then not criticize the outcome. If I have a stake in the outcome, well then I should, you know, I shouldn't uh, hand to him something I want done my way necessarily. Yeah. So in your, um, in the chapter that focuses on contribution, um, you talk about how helpful it is to volunteer that your own contribution to a situation. Um, what about someone who feels like, well, it's always one-sided. Like I'm always saying like, yeah, this is how I feel like I'm contributing, but the other person never is willing to step forward and accept their own contribution. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you asked this. So we talk a little bit about, um, blame or contribution shifters and absorbers. So absorbers are quick. When something goes wrong, we're quick to see our own part of it. Oh, I should have seen this coming. I can't believe I let this happen again. Um, blame or contribution shifters can never see their part of it. When something goes wrong, you know, well, you screwed this up. You should have told me the alarm didn't go off. I didn't know there was a cop at that corner. Um, those two people, by the way, find each other in relationships, (laughs) the perfect relationship, because they both agree it's the absorber's fault. Uh, But over time, what is a pretty stable system at first becomes pretty unstable because the absorber gets 
tired. Two things happen. They get tired of always being the one in the doghouse and who's taking all the responsibility for trying to fix things. Um, and, and, you know, the one who always apologizes. The other thing that happens is they start to bump up against the limits of what they can change if the other person isn't willing to see their part of the problem. Mm. And so really talking about, you know, look, I can't fix this by myself. So, you know, I'm willing to do the following because I think that's my contribution to this problem. And if this is going to work, this is what would help from my point of view if you could change it. Um, and I think that conversation is the conversation to be having. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's complicated, but I'm, but it sounds like what we're talking about is ways to encourage a shifter to, to see that you're, you're, um, lightly asking them you're you're lightly making an ultimatum it it sounds like actually is like okay i'm i'm meeting you but you get a step forward here or else it's not working yeah yeah Yeah. lightly or not so lightly sometimes um (laughs) yeah i mean what we say is you know take responsibility for your contribution to the problem early and often be absolutely willing to say look looking back there are some things i wish i'd done differently or going forward here's what I'm going to change, but don't take responsibility for their part of the problem because that's actually only, um, exacerbating the problem, not getting fixed, you know, saying, Mm. look, I can, I can change what time I show up. I can't change whether you're actually there when I get there. Yeah. That's up to you. Yeah. Great. Well, there's so the reason that your book is you know 300 pages long is because each of these topics you could talk about for a long time and it's um i want to encourage all of you to check out difficult conversations because it's so rich and um and it will really flesh out your your understanding of each of these um topics that we're addressing so that you can see how it applies to you and how to troubleshoot and all of that but i don't want to to uh, lose sight of the fact that we still have two more conversations to talk about. <laughs> and I would love to to also talk a little bit about how it all works in practice. And hopefully we have time for that. Um, so should we move on to the feeling conversation? We should. I'll mention one thing here as we move on, which is um, it took us 15 years, but we did finally write a next book. Um, that picks up some of the themes that we're talking about. Um, so it's called Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, Even When It's Off-Base, Unfair, Poorly Delivered, and Frankly, You're Not in the Mood. Mm. And it's about feedback in professional life and personal life and in relationships, marriage, um, or long-term relationships. A lot of what we're talking about also could be seen as feedback to each other about what you need to change. Mm. And so there, there's a big link between what we're talking about in difficult conversations and in particular a chapter about relationship systems, um, where part of the problem is the way I am paired with the way you are is what's causing the problem. We each think the other person should change. Um, and just trying to unravel how much of this is me and how much of this is you. Um, and 
when do we need boundaries? Chapter 10 is all about boundaries and how to say no to feedback. So, um, there's a link between those two. I thought that I should mention before we move on then to talk about feelings and identity. Great. Well, I can't wait to read your, your next book. And, um, also it reminds me that, that, that does so often happen. Um, in fact, you know, people like Harville Hendricks talk about how that's almost by design in terms of relationship. You're designed to come together and create conflict and get stirred up. And it's an opportunity for you to heal, to grow, to, to, um, so, so there's this angle of, you know, maybe no healing takes place and you just figure out how to collaborate, but there's also this angle of, healing taking place through the understanding, which actually allows for for a collaborative solution to a situation, or like also this level of, you know, wow, I'm really in relationship. This might not happen so much when you're at the office, but in relationship, you really have this opportunity. And, and this is a lot of the work that I do with the couples that I work with is getting them to see these these moments of being able to heal with each other to to get back the part of them that's missing, which is why they are in this big conflict. And um, so it's a different kind of change. It's not like the change that gets at this superficial result. It's like the deeper change that maybe transforms the identity, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I also think that it's in relationships of all kinds, um, but probably many cases most intensely in our romantic relationships and our parenting relationships where we learn the most in life, whether we want to or not. We learn what it really means to love someone and to balance that with loving ourselves and to forgive someone, but also to respect and forgive ourselves. And, and that sometimes means I can't be in this relationship, but it, often means um, finding that balance and the process itself over a lifetime is part of what makes us learn and grow as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. When you get into your section on the learning conversation, so actually making that shift, um, you talk about how important it is for people to realize that they have a right to have a voice and to to have an opinion and to speak clearly and um, just as much as the person that they're with does. Absolutely. And, and that I need to be, I need to have space in this relationship for my interests and perspective and cares. They are equally legitimate. And sometimes that's a learning process to say, to learn how to speak up and to find your own voice. Mm, yeah. So, um, wow. So much to so much. I know, to, to I know, so much about. to talk about. Yeah. All right. So let's let's dive back in to talk a little bit about why feelings are so important. The feeling conversation, and then we'll talk quickly about identity as well. Um, though that's also pretty meaty. So, um, but feelings. What's interesting is that I think a lot of people think, well, I want to pull feelings out of it because it's just about the facts, and um, so. So why are why is it so important to be aware of the feelings and to actually have those be part of the dialogue? Well, in many cases, 
how we each feel treated is at the heart of what this conversation is really about, how we feel treated in the relationship, how we feel treated um, around this issue. And so when people say, like, I just need to leave feelings out, I think to myself, number one, um, you're focused on the negative effects that feelings can have. When we get frustrated, we can get argumentative or stubborn or closed or, um, you know, escalate things in ways that aren't helpful so that we're not being sort of thoughtful and self-reflective in the conversation. Um, but feelings also play a really positive role in our relationships. When people say, when I go to work, I try to check my feelings at the door. I think, well, number one, of course you can't really as a human being do that. So you're sitting in meetings and reading your email, having emotional reactions. You're just pretending they're not there. Um, but number two, if we could do that, I'm not sure we should do that because feelings are what keep us coming to work. Um, they keep us working on hard problems, feelings of sort of appreciation and affection and pride and all of that, whether it's at work or at home, are part of what makes life worthwhile and are the glue that help keep our rela relationships together. Right. And so, when people come to me and say, like, you know, I just don't feel I don't feel love anymore. I don't, I'm not feeling that juice. Then, you know, I start asking, like, well, do you get angry? Do you get sad? Like there. And and I think it's so often the case that people are shutting off those negative emotions and or trying to. And it suppresses the whole system. Um, yeah. Because you can't yeah, be selective about it. Exactly. You can't be selective about it. That it, as you're sort of tamping down the valve to try to keep the negative feelings down, you're closing the valve on all your feelings. Yeah, yeah, and you make some great distinctions in difficult conversations about how to talk about your feelings in ways that don't become judgments or attributions or, um, you know, where they're, they're inarguable truths. This is how I feel. Um, and it creates yeah. space for the other person to to respond to you. Yeah, so we make a few important distinctions. Probably three jump to mind. We'll see if I can remember. <laughs> I have them in my head right now. We'll see if I can remember them through this explanation. Um, so one is that um, there's a big difference between expressing emotion and being emotional. Mm. And being emotional often involves translating our feelings into judgments or accusations or profanity or whatever, like to express anger emotionally, it tends to sound like what the is wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. I suddenly thought, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. You can say, yeah, it's <laughs> okay. explicit. You can say whatever you want. Yeah. Well, and, and like internal voices are profane, right? So um, we're often thinking those things if we're not saying them anyway. Yeah. I would say that's not, ex that's not sharing emotion. That's being emotional. And so because we think, well, that being emotional isn't going to be helpful, which is by the way, usually true. We then try to keep emotions out altogether rather than saying, you know, look at this stage, I'm so exasperated and, confused and I, I'm at my wit's end and I don't know what the solution is. Frankly, I'm a little lost. Just saying that rather than translating it into accusations and um, blame and all of that um, makes a huge difference so that you can have, you can talk about feelings in the conversation without turning them into attacks. 
The second um, thing that I think is subtle but incredibly important is that sometimes people will say to us, well, I told my boyfriend how I feel and it's not helping. And um, we'll say, well, so what, what exactly did you say? And she said, I said, I feel like you don't care about me. Now, the key here is that anytime feel is followed by like, it's not a feeling, it's a thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So you guys have probably talked about this in the past. I feel like you don't care about me is an attribution about his intentions and feelings. It's not a statement of how you feel. So, you know, I feel lonely. I feel confused about whether you're as committed to this as I am. Um, I feel um, scared about what that might mean. Those are feelings that would prompt a different kind of conversation. He can take the invitation or not take the invitation, but it's a much more promising invitation in terms of whether he's willing to pick it up and have a real conversation about what's going on. Right. Right. I feel like you are blah, blah, or I feel that. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's go on to the, uh, to the identity conversation. Hmm. Because we, we've talked about feelings a lot on this show, so I, yeah. I'm hoping yeah. that people get it. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, my internal voice reaction, which suddenly became external, mm, um, <laughs> is, is really acknowledging that often the feelings are driven by the identity yeah. questions and fears. What feels at stake here isn't whether you come home on time, it's whether you really care about me. Um, it's about whether I am lovable or not. It's about whether this relationship is working. Um, it's about whether I'm someone who's being cheated on or can trust my partner or whether I'm trustworthy in some way. Right. Or whether I'm standing up for myself or a whether pushover. Whether I'm standing up for myself or I'm being walked on. Absolutely. Yeah. And so those deeper questions are often what's prompting as a lot driving a lot of the feelings that are embedded in the conversation so these two are very much linked i think yeah yeah so um do you need to okay we're good um nope. <laughs> so uh how can someone identify like what's what are some good ways for them to to figure out what what's at stake with their identity yeah so just the question, so what do I worry this conversation says about me or this situation says about me um, is a useful question to ask yourself to really hone in on, huh, what is it that I am worried about here? Um, and once you can identify a couple of those things, you know, this is a question of do I have good judgment in the relationships I'm choosing? Am I, scre am I screwing this up? Um, I'm worried this suggests that I am going to be alone um, for the rest of my life. If you can put a finger on some of those things that are really the question, the deeper questions that you're hooking onto this situation, well, then you can actually um, get a better handle on why this feels so high stakes. Like on the surface, sometimes the argument we're having feels trivial, but it's it's symbolic of something deeper for us. Mm. Um, the second thing then to do is to let go of the all or nothing black or white frame, because we often think this either means 
I'm totally lovable and everything is 100% fine, or I'm just not lovable and never will be. Um, and of course, identity is never either or. It's about, you know, am I loved by this person rather than am I lovable? Right. Um, am I doing things that help me be more lovable or am I frustrating someone so that it's not a hundred percent of anything because we all do things that make us hard to love sometimes, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of a relationship, the other person in some sense in the infatuation stage loves me because of my flaws. Right. And then eventually we settle in and have to figure out how to love each other despite our flaws. <laughs> right. Right. It's the big irony. <laughs> yeah. So, we can feel that shift happening, right? As we settle in and live alongside each other over years and years and years, the flaws um, become much more visible on each side. My sister, my youngest sister had sort of a whirlwind romance that culminated in sort of a surprise proposal at my house while our parents were here visiting. And so she and I went running after that afternoon. And she said, wow, I'm just kind of stunned. Like, I feel like I'm still trying to figure out what's wrong with him. <laughs> and I said to her, look, five years from now, you're going to have a much more robust answer to that question. <laughs> the, the question will simply be, are there any deal breakers? You know, yeah. like, you've got hints of it now, whatever the differences are between you, you will know them in five years. Funny. So do you find that there's like a softening effect when you identify like, oh, I'm worried that if I that this means I'm a pushover, or this means that I'm uh, unlovable, that once you identify that, that that's at stake, that like there's a, a wiser, more rational part of you that starts to see the fallacy in that or. Yeah. And uh, yes. And also that it gives us room to have a more nuanced and realistic picture of who we are. Mm. You know, I'm someone who does a lot of things that are very loving and who sometimes can be challenging, you know, around this issue. Or I'm someone who I actually do stick up for myself in a number of situations. Now I feel a little bit curious about why I'm having such a hard time. Yeah in this relationship or with this person or over this issue. And so it actually helps me get a more nuanced and gray sense of myself, a mixed, you know, I'm someone who will make mistakes. I'm someone who sometimes does things that hurt other people. Um, and I'm someone who cares about making it right or cares about being better. If I can hold those three things in my head, it actually gives me more room to have some self-acceptance and it sort of helps me not hold this situation as the, you know, end all be all verdict, black or white on who I am. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's shift to the, um, the question of like, okay, we've done like all of this, um, soul searching. And, and in mm -hmm. fact, I think you suggest that it's really wise to prepare for these conversations by, really asking yourself or with a friend or journaling like what's what what am i arguing about what are they arguing about like what what what's the what happened conversation for each of us and what's the what are the feelings at stake for each of us to the extent that we can 
really start to put ourselves in the other person's shoes mm -hmm. and and then what what are my what are the things about my identity that seem to be at stake here and and maybe what would they be for the other person um, yeah and actually on our website um which you can get to it at www.diffcon, short for difficult conversations, D-I-F-F-C-O-N.com. There's actually a nav that says help yourself. And um, you can download preparation worksheets um, and other free resources for this. Because I do think it makes a huge difference to do a little bit of that ahead of time. Often the way we prepare is that we lay awake um, or we fume, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the other person to show up. Um, finally, uh, thinking of all of our talking points so that, you know, I have the things, the messages I want to say to you. And then once I've said them, we're done. But of course the other person is not satisfied with that model of the conversation. So this is a way to prepare that actually puts you in a better place to have a better conversation. Right, right. Because, and this goes right back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that the goal here is to have a conversation that's about developing mutual understanding. So, And at least understanding the problem Yeah. before we try to come up with my solution or your solution or whatever we're going to do about this. I mean, let's yeah. take some, let's take a couple of the really hard issues that can sometimes feel hopeless. Um, you know, I want children and you don't, or you have a job and, or you want to move back home to where you grew up. And I don't, I mean, those are really hard. It's, it's hard to think of creative solutions. And so often we'll walk into those conversations thinking, I've just got to get them to see it my way. And if instead I can think, okay, first we just need to have a conversation to understand why, what is this really about for each of us? Um, then whether or not we agree at the end of that conversation, we're actually in a better place in terms of our relationship um, to find a solution if there is one. Mm. So it's not the only conversation we're going to have, but it's the conversation that's most important that we usually skip. Yeah. So can you suggest some language for people, whether it's like the first conversation or the millionth conversation mm -hmm. to to create that shift? And how, how would they do that to to invite their um, partner to to collaborate with them anew? Yeah. So in the so in the chapter about whether to have the conversation at all, a big piece of it is what's my purpose? If my purpose is to change them or get them to agree with me. That's probably, it's a totally reasonable purpose to have, but it's probably not going to help at this stage. So if I can instead negotiate with myself, say, okay, I just have to better understand why they're so adamant, then the question of how to begin gets a little easier. We talk about how to begin as using the third story. So there's my story, which is that, you know, having kids is what I've always wanted and um, you're being selfish. There's your story, which is, I told you up front, I didn't want kids and now you're changing the rules. Both of those could be true. We're each pretty sure we're right about them. And you know, they both could be right. If instead I can find the third story, which is, um, you know, we have a really different sense of how important this issue is. Number one. And number two, um, what it will mean for this, for our relationship, if we can't find a solution, 
so I might start the conversation by saying, you know, look, we've been trying to talk about this for a long time. I'm not sure I've done a great job of understanding sort of how we got here or what this means to you. So I'm not going to try to persuade you of anything. I'm just trying to understand what this means from your point of view. What's at stake? What are you afraid of? Um, and the hard part is going to be my not arguing with them about it because what I'm going to want to do is downplay their fears. Like, but that won't happen, you know, or, but you know, that's ridiculous. I really have to stay in the place of being curious, almost as if I'm a third party who's doesn't have skin in this game and who's just like, huh, that's really interesting. Not to pretend I don't have a view, because I think if I am struggling with my reaction, I think I can say, you know, it's hard for me to hear this because I have different predictions about how likely that is to happen or, um, but so let me just acknowledge that, but maybe I'm not understanding why you think it's so likely to happen. So you can, what we call signpost it. So note your disagreement, but then go back to working to understand them. Mm. Yeah. The tell me more about that. Yeah. Tell me more or what have you seen that happen to friends or in your own family, to your uncle or whatever. Um, and then of course that's not the end of the story because you need to stick up for yourself also. It could be that at the end of that conversation, you say, well, so you've given me a lot to think about. I would, I feel like I want to say how, where I'm at and what this means to me. But so maybe we could talk about that tomorrow night or whatever. In other words, you don't, this, this is a series of conversations over time. Mm. Um, but you have to make sure that you get back to say your side also, because sometimes we get so empathetic to the other person that we forget what our perspective is. Um, and we forget to come back to say, okay, so let me say a little bit about what this is about to me and the regret that I fear I will have and that it's hard for me to imagine looking back and not having been a parent or whatever it would be. Mm. And, um, if you first are willing to listen inside their story for why it makes sense to them rather than sort of criticizing or attacking it, you make it easier. And also you kind of set a ground rule expectation that like, you know, look, I need you just to understand where I'm at. You don't have to agree with it. I just need you to try to work to understand it. They may or may not be willing, but you've at least shown them how they might do that um, in how you handled their perspective. Yeah. And one thing that's, implicit in what you just said is the need to really take time to to create time to have these conversations and and um to be explicit about that as much as possible yeah i think that that's right and what's interesting is that um sometimes it feels like well i don't i don't have time like that especially in the workplace people are like i don't have time to have a seven hour conversation and um my response is like, well, first of all, for a conversation like having children, that probably is a pretty involved conversation. For a conversation about, you know, where we're going to go for the holidays, often it's a lot more efficient to get to the heart of what's really underneath this, what's really important to each of us and why we're so adamant or feel so strongly about it. That's actually cutting to the heart of it and having a conversation that could be seven minutes long, but we actually got to what's really at stake here for each of us 
in a really efficient way rather than let's argue about it repeatedly for several hours <laughs> over the next few weeks. <laughs> so so it's actually a much more efficient solution in many cases, even though it does take some time. Yeah. Yeah. And does it sound like it sounds like in these conversations that you're having, you are also doing your best to elicit those three conversations from your partner as well. Yeah, you're really paying attention to the fact that some of this is about facts. Some of this is about, you know, the logistics of having kids and what you have to give up in your career, or at least what you fear you might have to give up, or can we afford it? So those are sort of the what happened part. um, And what are the risks and consequences that I'm worried about? But there's a second level in which the conversation is happening, which is what you're also listening for, which is what are you afraid of? What are you worried you will regret? It could be about the fear of regret for both of you. One of you fears they'll regret having kids and feeling constrained or overburdened or not up to the task or that they'll parent like their parent parented them. Um, And the other person fears that they'll regret not having kids. Mm. Um, And so at least now we're clear what at least part of this is about for each of us. Yeah. Yeah, I um I really appreciate your your wisdom and and how much there is to it and at the same time I like what you said that just because there's a lot to it that doesn't mean it can't be a 7-minute conversation, but it's it's helpful to to know what the conversation is really about. Um, I just want to point out for you listening that we have a detailed show guide. It has the links that we talked about um, to get to Sheila's site, diffcon.com, um, for free stuff. And uh, the show guide for, for this show is also free. You can get it by going to neilsatin.com slash conversation or just texting the word passion to the number 33444 and following the instructions. And um, Sheila, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I do have one more question for you, if I may. Sure. Um, And this is another, like going back to where we were sort of toward the beginning, which is, Mm. let's say we've had this, like we've actually been able to come to an understanding. Like, I I think I really get you and I think you really get me. How do you pivot that conversation to one that's actually about collaboration and problem solving to to move past the impasse? Yeah, well, so partly like visually, if you if you can get to that place, like, okay, now I think we have a better handle on what this what feels at stake for us here. Right. And you might still completely disagree with the other person at that. Yeah, I, I still want what I want and I disagree with you. Um, but I, I now better understand why you see it so differently. Mm. Um, in some ways, just that creates some common ground or partnership between you. It's like, okay, now that we have a handle about why we're so stuck, what do we do? Like, what, what do you think might be some options? Now, options, um, this is borrowing from the negotiation language, just sort of what are the possibilities for how to do this? And those might be substantive options like, well, you know, let's have one and then we'll see. Um, you want to have a big family. I'm not sure I want any family. Maybe I'm persuaded. Let's try one. And I'm not making any promises beyond that. They could also be process options. Like let's spend more time with X, Y, or Z. Let's get a dog. Um, the question of 
are there ways we can test out whether our fears, which is what this is partly about, whether we think our fears are likely to manifest? At least the two of you are now trying to brainstorm ways to handle it and figure it out, a process for figuring it out over time. Mm. So yeah. I think that invitation um, is the key. So what do you think we should try now, given we still disagree? What's the solution? Right. Yeah. And hopefully that having gone through that first process gets you to a place where everyone's feeling more open. A little bit more open and it opens, it often opens up shorter term and longer term possibilities. You know, if, if it's moving, it might be, you know, I'll go for a year or, you know, we'll keep a apartment here or whatever. It, it opens up more than just my way or your way. Some different options for how to handle it in many cases. And in, in some sense in relationships, I'm remembering something that my mentor, Roger Fisher, who wrote Getting TS would say, which is solutions aren't the answer. It's not so much about the individual solution in most cases that we come up with. It's about can we solve the problems together or explore ways to reconcile the fact that we really do just see this differently or have different preferences. So can we find ways to accommodate that with each other as we as we walk through life? Mm. And okay, I lied. I have one more question <laughs> because those are such uh, those are words that I try to live by, and I hope that for everyone who's listening, that you that that's a um, a precept for your relationship, like that that's where you operate from. Is like we're we're allowing each other to be different, and we're finding ways to be in that process of being different that that feels good and that still is workable for for each of us. Um, Everyone must ask you this question, but how do you know when you're done? How do you know mm. when it's just like, okay, this we're just not getting anywhere? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there was a book that was written a bunch of years ago called Should You Leave? Do you know this book? I don't. So um, I'm totally blanking on the guy who wrote it. He wrote Prozac Nation, I think. Anyway, it, it's a great book about sort of are you at the point of um, saying, I can't stay and still be true to myself. Uh, that balance of loving and respecting myself and staying in this relationship has tipped. This is a deal breaker. Um, the book didn't sell very well, I think, because people didn't want to have a book on their bedside table called Should You Leave? <laughs> <laughs> so they actually did. When it went to paperback, they renamed the book. And what I can't remember is what it's, it's called now. Is this the... Um... Peter Kramer book? It might be. It might be. I'm going to have, now I'm going to have to look it up because yeah, it, it, it was, it, is, it was yeah. when I lived in Cambridge. So this is, means it's like 15 years ago. Um, is it Peter Kramer? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I just did a Google. Well, see, I can multitask yeah, a little see, bit. There you go. Here. There you go. See, I was actually listening to and thinking about your question instead of Googling, but it's good that one of us was on the ball. <laughs> 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 so, so I think that question, you know, when I get like frustrated and fed up, I think to myself, okay, would I trade my set of problems for a different set of problems? Because every relationship has challenges and differences that you just have to work around because they're just not going to go away. Is my set one that I can live with compared to what they could be? As long as that answer is yes, 
definitely. They could be a lot worse than this. Um, then you're in pretty good shape, depending on the degree of your answer to that question. I think there are times when you get to the place where you're like, this is a deal breaker. Staying and living in this, in the way I feel treated here, I've, I want to do everything I can to make it like most likely that the other person will take the invitation to be willing to try to make it better and to see their contribution. But if they aren't, then I have to make the decisions I have control over. Right. Which might be, which might be leaving or might be trading for a new unknown set of problems. Like, you know, we talked earlier about the going to court, like you think that might be an answer, but Mm -hmm. you don't know. (laughs) You really don't. But you, you might at least know that you're done with the certainty of, of how things are, or you might decide you're willing to tolerate how things are when it comes right down to it. Right. Or there are things I can change. So I get what I need. Mm. Maybe not, Maybe not, I don't get the emotional understanding or intimacy emotionally in this conversation, but I have friends who can provide it for me um, so that I can figure out, are there things I can do, stay in the relationship for the things that actually I appreciate and are valuable to the relationship, but let go of the notion that this person will change in this particular way. Yeah. So how do I negotiate with myself to live with that? Yeah. Well, I don't want to end on a downer. So let's no. let's remind ourselves of what you said before that that it's actually possible and and I'm assuming that you've actually seen some pretty amazing transformations with people who took on difficult conversations in this oh, completely different way. I think one of the most um satisfying things for me is when people come up to me and this happens with some regularity and say you know, I read your book 12 years ago and it saved my marriage, you know, or it totally turned around this relationship with my sister. We had been estranged for many years. Like when I see what people can do when they pick up some of this stuff, I'm just so honored. And it, it really matters because our highest aspiration was that we could capture all of this in a way that was accessible enough that people could just pick up the book and immediately use the ideas to make a difference in their lives. Yes. Well, I have definitely seen that to be true for me. And I encourage everyone listening to check out Difficult Conversations. Sheila Heen, thank you so much for your generosity and time and wisdom. And it's so great to talk to you. And uh, I hope to have you back at some point. Maybe we'll talk about your new book uh, next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.